Luke chapter number 5. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. Luke chapter 5, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, upon the Lord Jesus, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, of course this is Simon Peter, one of the apostles, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draw. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, thank you for letting us be in the house of God. What a high and holy privilege it is just to get to come in amongst your people, Lord, and to worship you, to hear the word of God, to sing these precious songs, to have fellowship with the people of God. I pray that this moment would not be lost on us, that we would not let it pass by in in formality and familiarity, but that we would seize this moment as an opportunity to hear the word of God and to have our lives eternally transformed. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person in this room, but you do, Lord. And I pray if there's one that is lost and undone, depending on self, depending on their own righteousness, Lord, I pray you'd show them their lost condition, that they'd not lean upon themselves, but cast themselves entirely upon the rock of salvation in Jesus Christ by believing on the gospel, Lord. And we'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. Thank you for the people of God. Thank you for this day. Lord, we love you and thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask all these things. In Christ's name, amen. In Luke chapter number 5, we have what could be described as the first detailed interaction between Christ and Simon Peter. One commentator, I thought, uh, astutely made the statement that if you were to remove Christ from the Gospels, what you'd really have is the Gospels of Simon Peter. Uh, Meaning what you have is really a record of the life of Peter, for he certainly, other than the Lord Jesus, seems to be the most prominent person in all of the Gospels. I find that's probably because he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. Amen? You get lots of attention when you speak before thinking. And Peter had a bad habit of doing this very thing. And it's interesting to consider sort of the origins of Simon Peter's relationship with the Lord Jesus. Though our text records the first detailed interaction between the two of them, this, in fact, was not the first time that they had met. The previous chapter, Luke chapter 4, actually tells of how Peter had already borne witness 
to Christ's miraculous power. Turn with me one chapter back, and I want you to notice what the Bible says in the previous chapter. I'm trying to frame some things this morning before we get into the preaching of God's Word. Verse number 38 of chapter 4 says this, that he, that Jesus, arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother, that's a real problem for the Catholic Church, Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The devils also came out of many crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. You say, preacher, why do we read that passage of Scripture? Because all of this is transpiring in the house of Simon Peter. No doubt he was present there and aware there. In fact, here in a moment I'll show you definitively that he was. But I want you to think about, in light of what we know from chapter 4, what transpires in chapter number 5. You see, Peter, we could, I think, accurately say, did not first meet the Lord Jesus in chapter 5, nor, I would say this morning, did he first believe on the Lord in chapter number 5. Surely we could say from this passage of Scripture in chapter 4 that Peter had seen the the Lord, he had, he had recognized some things about who he was, and in fact we find down in verse 42, the Bible says when it was day he departed, Jesus departed, and went into a desert place, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. Mark's account tells us that Simon Peter and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. You see, Simon Peter had already believed on the Lord in chapter 4. Consider a few things about Simon Peter and what he had seen of the Lord. I'd say number one this morning, he had witnessed the Lord's power in chapter 4. He had seen the Lord stand over this woman, deathly ill, rebuke the fever that was within her, and raise her up by the power of His Word. You know, when I got born again, one of the things that drew me to the Lord Jesus Christ is I believed that He had the power to save me. I would have never came to Him if I thought I could get saved through through my church or, or through baptism or through being a good person or through trying to do good things. You see, only sinners need a Savior. And only hopeless sinners will come to Jesus Christ. And I was a hopeless sinner when I came to Jesus Christ. I came to Him because I believed Him to have the power to save me. I, like Simon Peter, had witnessed his power. Verse 40 says this. This is interesting. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him. Do you notice the language of the Holy Spirit in this verse? All they that had any sick with divers, meaning diverse or different diseases, brought them unto him. And what did Jesus do? He laid hands on the good ones. Is that what it says? He laid hands on the ones that had potential. It's what the Calvinist thinks. Amen? He laid hands on the ones that were foreordained. No. The Bible says He laid hands on every one of them and healed them. 
Now, we have a way of dressing up the record of the gospel, but you can imagine this motley crew of diseased, infirmed, broken individuals that were brought to Jesus. And I'm betting they didn't just have, you know, a a, a little bit of fever. I'm betting that they didn't just have a little cough. I'm betting these were the very refuse of society teeming with infection and corruption. But the Lord Jesus did not shy away from them. He didn't call out those that were easiest to heal or seemed to have the least affliction. But rather, every single one, He reached out and healed them. I'd say this, He had witnessed the power of the Lord, but number two, He had witnessed the pity of the Lord. And Simon Peter looked, and by the time we get to the end of our text in chapter 5, uh, Peter's starting to look at himself the same way he had been looking at some of them sick folk. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And no doubt Peter had seen what the Lord had done, and he recognized that the Lord Jesus, uh, far from keeping Himself at arm's length from the most corrupt, sick, and broken of society, He instead got right down into the midst and touched and healed those that were hurting the most. And you know, he probably thought to himself, if he can do that, that for them, then he'd probably do that for me. If he can heal what's broken on the outside, then he'd probably heal what's broken on the inside. And you know, I would have never come to the Lord if I didn't believe he had pity, that he loved, that he cared about me, that he was interested in me, that he had a heart for me. And and so when I came to the Lord, it's because I believed he could save me. It's because I knew that he loved me. But then look at verse 41. Man, this is astounding. It says, and devils also came out of many, crying out, and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Now what do you want to bet? Simon, right there in the thick of all of that, though the Lord Jesus hushed those spirits and quieted those spirits, I kind of think probably a few of them hollered out before the Lord got to them. And probably it's interesting to think, you know, it is later on Simon Peter that confesses him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, before the Lord Jesus when Christ asked, Whom do men say that I am and whom say ye that I am? And Christ said, or Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. Funny when you think about the strange ways in which the Lord works, because the first time Peter had probably ever heard heard this title applied to the Lord was at the mouth of these devils. Tells me this, he had witnessed his power, he had witnessed his pity, but he had witnessed his person. He knew who he was. Very few men walking the earth at that time really knew who Jesus was. Simon Peter, he looked and he said, this is no mere prophet. This is not merely some teacher or rabbi. This is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God. And when I got saved, it's because I believed He was able to save me. But I believed that He loved me. But I believed that He was the Son of God that had died for my sins, been buried and rose from the dead. You see, when we look at the life of Simon Peter, we could, I think, accurately say that it is not chapter 5 when he launches out into the deep with the Lord, but it is chapter 4 when he witnesses all these things that he first believes on the Lord. And that's why when the Lord Jesus arises the next day and departs out into a desert place that Simon Peter and the other men follow him. They had already made up their minds that he was Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And they beseech him. And when Peter says... All men seek for thee. He ain't excluding himself. He's saying, I'm looking for you as well. It would appear that Peter had already believed on Christ. Yet, when we come to our text in chapter 5, 
Peter is not following, but is fishing. Peter was a fisherman by trade. Him and James and John, it would appear, were in a business venture together. The Bible says they were partners together. And this was how Peter made his living. And it seems as though that Peter had believed on the Lord, had trusted in Him, Inasmuch as we can use this language about this moment in, in the Bible, he had been saved, he'd been born again, he had trusted the Lord, he had believed on him. But this is what happened. He believed on Christ and then simply went back to his life of toil and labor. Went back to the same life that he had been living before. He is a changed man, but nothing else has changed about his life. He's believed on the Lord, but then he's gone back to that same Fishing boat. By the way, we find a time later on in Peter's life at the close of John's gospel when in a moment of despair and disobedience, Peter once again lays down that net that he catches men by the gospel of Jesus Christ and goes back to that same old fishing net. And you know, it it arrests my attention and, and it makes me think about chapter number five and what it means for us. You see, here's the thing. Peter had given his heart to Christ. He had believed on him. We could, I think, say that he was saved. He had accepted, acknowledged who Christ was and had received the witness of his truth. He had given his heart to Christ, but he had not yet given Christ his life. He was willing to trust Christ with his sins. He was willing to trust Christ with his future, with his eternal home in heaven. But he wasn't willing to trust Christ with his present. In many ways, the story in our passage in chapter 5 mirrors this spiritual truth. Consider verse number 3 of chapter 5. The Bible says of Jesus that he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now, you know, we've read our text, but just to refresh in your mind, the Lord Jesus is teaching by the Lake Gennesaret and the people are pressing upon him. They're, they're, they're crowding him. And, and, you know, in a crowd of people, I mean, when you're in a room, it's part of the reason preachers stand on a platform when they preach. You get above all of the bodies and, and, and the sound reverberates a little better. But whenever you're down in the thick of it and in the mix of it, you, you can holler and you can scream, but, but, but the bodies sort of draw things out. I don't imagine real lean, fit, hard bodies would, but for some reason in Baptist churches, (laughs) people absorb sound. I don't know why that is. but uh, And so the Lord Jesus, because he cannot be heard, he goes to Simon and he says, listen, can I borrow your boat? Would you take me in just, you know, maybe a few yards out into the, into this? And then the acoustics of, of the lake and of the, the mountains, the hillsides, people will be able to hear me. And Simon says, well, Lord, of course I will. I'd be happy to do that. You're my Lord. You're, you're my, you're my savior. Of course I would be happy to do that. And so he takes Jesus into the boat and, and, and goes out a little from the shore. You know, in many ways, this reminds me of the extent of many Christians' relationship with the Lord Jesus. Consider two things here. Number one, in doing this, Peter made a public profession of Jesus Christ. When people looked and saw Jesus in the boat of Simon Peter, there was a natural thing they would assume. These two men are friends. They're close. Simon Peter would not do this for an enemy. And Peter, knowing this, was casting his lot with the Lord Jesus publicly and was publicly professing himself to be a friend and and probably most likely even a follower 
of Jesus Christ. I believe you ought to make public professions. I believe that. I, I, the Bible says that with the mouth confession is made unto us. Listen, I think we ought to acknowledge and tell people, hey, I got saved. I believed on the Lord Jesus. I, I'm a Christian. And I think we ought to be bold and public about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice the second thing, though. Not only did he make a public profession, but he gave Jesus a place of prominence. We could use this terminology. He gave him a platform. He put him out there in front of people and gave him the opportunity to communicate the truth of his word to those that were willing to listen. And in so doing, he was saying, this man, Jesus, is an important individual who you need to listen to. Listen, I think we ought to give him not just a place of prominence, but a place of preeminence in our life. Our life should be entirely about Jesus Christ. There's, there's, there's a lot of things that, that I don't believe God begrudges us having interests and, and hobbies and, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, what you should be known for above and beyond any and everything else is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. When people say your name, what they should think of is that man is a Christian. That lady is a Christian. They know Jesus Christ. They know God. And Peter had done this. They had fulfilled that. I, I mean, if you looked at, at, at Peter, you would have said, that's the man that lent Jesus his boat. I think all these things are noble. I think all these things are commendable. But in verse number 4, Christ commands Peter to go a step further. Now think about this. Peter's believed on the Lord. He's made public profession. He's given him a place of prominence. Everybody, when they looked at Peter, they would have associated him with Jesus and vice versa. And in many ways, that's exactly where most believers are at today. They've believed on Jesus Christ. They've been saved. They, they will tell other people that they have been saved and, and acknowledge that. They'll come to the house of God and, and worship the Lord. And all those are wonderful things. They're commanded to us. But in verse 4, Christ asks for more. Verse 4 says, Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draw. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you've come this far with me, but now I'm asking you to go a step further. You know, there wasn't much risk in launching just a few yards from the shore. No doubt an experienced fisherman like Peter and boatsman like Peter could have kept it from crashing upon the shore or any rocks that might have been adjacent. But the lake of Genesaret was notorious for storms that would pop up suddenly and violently. And a fisherman was always taking his life into his hands when he went out upon uh, the lake Genesaret. And so now Jesus is saying, Peter, I don't just want you to trust me in this moment and for this need, but I want you to put your life entirely in my hands and launch out into the deep and see what I'll do with your obedience. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, launching out into the deep. A great many Christians are content to push a little from shore, but when God really asks them to go all in for Jesus Christ, they balk and say, Lord, no, I'm sorry. I'll I'll publicly confess you. I'll acknowledge you. I will be a Christian in the public sense of the word. I'm thankful that you saved me. But to really devote my life to you, to make my life all about you and not about me and my ambitions and my desires, to give myself wholly over unto you, Lord, I'm sorry that's just too much for you to ask. But I just say this, hey, listen, the folks may be on the shore, but the fish are out in the deep. You want to see God do something with your life. You're going to have to give your life to Christ. 
You say, preacher, I'm already saved. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. I'm not talking about giving your heart to Christ. I'm talking about giving your life to Him. Making Him your everything and trusting Him completely with your hope, your plans, and your future. You see, you and I likewise are commanded to leave the shore, to launch out into the deep, and to commit our life fully to Christ. And when we read this passage of Scripture... You know, we've read the text. When we come to the close of it, Peter indeed, along with James and John, do this very thing most explicitly. They forsake all. They follow Him. They lay down their nets. Their life becomes not about them, but about Jesus Christ. But before that ever transpires, the Lord performs this miracle of the draught of fishes. And you know, something you'll find, I don't know about you, I'm sort of a visual learner. I have to see things, you know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the sucker for object lessons. That's who I am. Probably has to do with a low IQ. And Peter was the same way. When the Lord dealt with Peter, he always did so in a very visual sense. I'm not going to get in the weeds here, but if you were to look at that passage in the latter portion of the book of John, all of it's rich with imagery and meaning that would have been significant to Simon Peter, you know, they're, they're, he comes back from toiling all night, not catching any fish. Christ commands him to let his nets down, and he draws up a draught of fishes similar to our text here. He comes to the shore side, and there is a meal prepared for them. Uh, whenever uh, the the uh, the Lord Jesus prepares that meal, there's a fire built. You know, Jesus or Peter had denied him by fire. So all that is rich with imagery, and so evidently Peter was a visual learner. And in our text, we find that the Lord is in some ways giving Peter an object lesson about what a life devoted to Christ looks like. What does it mean? Why is it important? I'll tell you this. You could go the rest of your life and never leave the shore. There's lots of people that do. I'd say the vast majority of people uh, never live their life fully, totally committed to Jesus Christ. And you can if you choose to do so, but what is the risk and why should you give your life to Christ? In order to prepare Peter's heart for this truth, Christ teaches him five important lessons about committing fully to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice them with me this morning and then we'll be done. Look at verse number five. Now we left off in verse four. The Lord commands Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And in fact, the Lord's lesson had began before this interaction even began because Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. In Peter's natural uh, intuition and understanding, this seemed like a rational thing to say. Lord, the fishing's bad. The winds are wrong. The, the season's wrong. We went out. We did everything that could be done. But having done everything we possibly could, Lord, we still found ourselves in able, unable to catch any fish. You know the first lesson that he teaches them, and very often this is the lesson most people get stuck on in their Christian life. It's the lesson of failure. Before the Lord ever dealt with Simon Peter, you know what he let him do? He let him spend a long, dark night drawing up empty nets. So when the Lord comes along and says, don't you wish them nets were full? Peter was ready to say, well, listen, we've tried, (laughs) but evidently I don't know what I'm doing out here. I've said that a lot as a fisherman. Untold, untold amounts of money I've spent on fishing gear. 
and then just sat out there and smacked the water and thought, I don't know what I'm doing. What a waste of time this is. I go to the grocery store. They got fish at the grocery store. Why am I out here? And uh, Simon Peter, no doubt, was looking at the Lord and saying, well, Lord, I guess I'll do what you tell me because obviously what I'm doing ain't working. You know, sometimes the Lord lets you fall flat on your face. And in your Christian walk, by the way, He lets you experience frustration. He lets you experience failure. He lets you spend those long, dark nights drawing up empty nets and discouraged and despondent and saying, Lord, nothing's working in my life. I'm, I, 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 I'm going to church, but I ain't getting help. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to live for you, but ain't nothing, ain't nothing happening. I'm tithing, but I'm still struggling. Lord, I'm, I'm doing everything that, that I thought a Christian was supposed to do. I've got the formula down pat. You know, that's like the fisherman saying, I picked the right pattern. I've picked the right season. I've picked the right jig. I've picked the right plug. I've done everything. I've got the right line. I've got the right rod. I've got the right cast. I've got the right technique. But at the end of the day, only God tells the fishes where to go. And here's what Simon Peter had to recognize and feel deeply, is that his life would be a failure if he didn't put it in the hands of Jesus Christ. Christ says it explicitly in John chapter number 15. He says, without me... He can do nothing. I mean, my soul, never has the word nothing meant so much as it means in that verse. Nothing. And a great many Christians just live in this groundhog's day of discouragement and frustration day by day by day and failure. Why is that? Why does God permit that? Is God angry at them? Is He cruel? Does He delight? No. He's trying to get them to understand that until you trust Him with where to put the nets, they're always going to come up empty. This thing ain't about figuring out a formula and following it faithfully. This thing is about daily living in fellowship with Jesus Christ, yielding to Him the agency and autonomy of your life, making Him not just your Savior, but your Lord and your Master, and letting Him lead and guide you day by day. A preacher, can a person get saved and never live for Christ? Sure. I've seen tons of people. Most of them do it that way. And their life is a life of constant frustration and constant failure. He taught him the lesson of failure. But in verse number 5, Peter makes an interesting statement. And Peter would... Sometimes I feel... There's people in the Bible you identify with. And sometimes I identify with with Peter. because I And and I'm trying to be sincere when I say this. that, That Peter's life was a life of almost unmitigated stupidity broken only briefly by flashes of brilliance. (laughs) And sometimes I look at that old boy and I think, I know what he's going through. Every once in a while you, you, you fool around, mess up, and do something right, and you think you've got it figured out, and then you just go right back to what you've been doing. And what a mess it is. And Peter's life was like that. I mean, it was just this... He would say these just unbelievable, stupid things. And then he would in the next breath make a statement that had literally dripped from the lips of God to his ears. And in this passage, he says, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, nevertheless, boy, we better learn that nevertheless. Never, hey, I've done it. Nevertheless, Lord, I think it ought to be that. Nevertheless, Lord, my desire is nevertheless. 
Nevertheless, he says, <laughs> at thy word, I will let down the net. Here's what the Lord was teaching him. He's teaching him the lesson of failure, but number two, he's teaching him the lesson of faith. He no doubt let those nets down in the same ground that he had let them down before. We, we often say, and I know later on there's a miracle where the Lord says, cast your net on the right side of the ship instead of on the left side. And if we're not careful, we'll walk away from that thinking, well, no, there's casting uh, on the wrong side. But they weren't casting on the wrong side. Uh, they was casting under the wrong intuition, under the wrong knowledge, under the wrong power. I, 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 you know, if you know anything about fishing, you know that five, ten yards don't, don't make no real difference. That fish can see under the water. That fish can hear when that uh, hits the water. I mean, really, that don't make any difference at all. The difference was not which side of the ship they were dropping the nets on. The difference was the power of the Lord's words. No doubt, they went back to the very same places that they had dropped nets all night long. And all of a sudden, there's fish there. Well, why is that? It wasn't that the nets were any different. Oh, my. I want you to listen. It wasn't that the nets were different. It wasn't that there was something wrong with the nets. It wasn't that there was something broken about the nets. There is a whole industry of grifters and snake oil salesmen in Christianity today that is devoted to telling people that, that worship God in the old-time way that their nets are broken. That, well, what's really wrong is you're doing it the wrong way, and that's why these things happen the way they do. And, you know, if you, if you, if you had rock music, and if you had a coffee bar, and if you had, you know, uh, whatever it might be, interpretive dance, weird, if you had all that, you'd draw in young people, and they'd get saved, and, and, and call on God, and everything be different, and you'd thrive. Really what they got, they ain't got nothing more miraculous, they just got better marketing. That's all that it is. And there's a whole industry built around saying your nets are broken. That's why you're not drawing anything up. You say, preacher, do you believe people's nets are broken? I do. I do. Even in independent Baptist churches. I believe a lot of people pulling up empty nets when they don't have to. It's the same nets. Probably the same place. People say, well, preacher, the problem is where we're having church at. We need to go have it down at the bar. We need to go down, you know, down have it at the Cotton Eye Joe or Whatever it might be, if we do that, everything, no. Problem's not where we're having it. The problem is not with the nets. The problem is, the only thing that's going to catch fish is faith. Amen. Here's what Peter learned. What he learned is, the, the active ingredient in a life of Christian success, and I'm not talking about secular success, but I'm talking about a life lived for the glory of God, the active ingredient is faith. That without faith, it, it's impossible to please Him. It's not just hard to please him. It's impossible. You say, but preacher, it's not impossible to live like a Christian without faith. I mean, depending on how you define it, I'd agree with you. A lot of people have the outer trappings of Christianity and they never live by faith. Uh, you say, preacher, it's, it's not impossible to build a church without faith. I agree with you. There's a lot of places don't even deserve the word church on their sign that are busting at the seams. I, I agree with you. But what's the purpose of our life? The purpose of our life is to do all things well-pleasing in His sight. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter how churchy it is. If it's without faith, God says, I'm not happy with it. I'm not pleased with it. I, I, I will not accept it. Peter learned that the active component in the life of the believer was faith. If you're not living by faith, here's the problem. We view, we view faith as the jump starter for our spiritual deadness. 
And then we think the alternator of good works is going to carry us through the rest of our days. We think, well, I'll use faith to get me to Jesus and that jump starts a relationship with God. But then from there on out, I don't need to trust God. I just follow the formula. I just do what's expected of me and I'll live the rest of my days and I'll please God. But the reality is this. It's true when you believe on Jesus Christ by faith, you get saved eternally, irrevocably, born again by the grace of God. Your salvation is not in question anymore. But I hope you got saved for more than just to stay out of hell. I hope you got saved so that the life of God could be manifest in you and you might live well-pleasing in His sight. And I'm telling you, if you're going to live like that, it's going to take faith on a daily basis. Paul didn't say only that we live by faith. He said we walk by faith and not by sight. And Peter learned here. He didn't always keep the lesson at the forefront of his mind. I understand, Peter. I'm right there with you, buddy. But he learned that without faith, there was no way to serve God. He learned the lesson of faith. Verse 6, the Bible says this, When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. He taught him the lesson of the fish. He taught him this. They, no doubt, had fished for many years, Peter had. Funny thing about it, I, you know, most people when they're fishing, I understand they're fishing with nets, not with a rod and a reel, but most people overestimate the weight of their line. Some of you ladies, man, or you might be a fisherman, you might know, and your husband might be in the dark. I don't know, but some of y'all, this may not make sense, but sometimes, you know, you'll go fishing with somebody, and we'll be out, and we'll be bass fishing, trout fishing, everything, and I'll look over, and they're throwing out this big, like, dock weight rope out into the, to the water, and you'll say, what weight is that line? And they'll say, it's 50 pound braided. I don't know if you realize this, you could tow your car with 50-pound braided line. Like, if you have six-pound test line on your fishing rod, that's not to catch fish up six pounds. That's saying at any given time the, the tested tensile strength is, is six pounds. Hopefully you're going to wear that fish down. He's going to weigh less when he's coming through. The, but most people overestimate because they want to be sure, right? I'd say fishermen at this time were the same way. They probably crafted their nets, bought their nets, and fashioned their nets in such ways to ensure that no matter how big a catch they had, their nets would not break. Because as valuable as those fish in that net might have been, they were not more valuable than the nets themselves. The Bible says that this was a great draw of fishes, a great multitude, so much so that their nets began to break. You know what that tells me? That tells me that they caught more fish than Peter ever imagined was possible to catch in one net. Can I say it this way? God did more with Peter's nets than Peter ever even dreamed were possible to be done with those nets. These nets are his life and his livelihood. And can I tell you this? You give your life to Christ, he'll do more with it than you ever even dreamed possible ever even dreamed possible. He taught them the lesson of the fish. Then verse 6, he says this, it was so many that their net break. And you say, preacher, well, that's no good. I mean, what's the purpose of it? Well, because it was never about the fish in the first place, right? That wasn't why he was doing this. I mean, you understand that by the command of Christ, those fish could have sprouted legs and walked up on the, on the shore. It wasn't that he was sitting around and needed fish. It said he wanted to get the glory out of the miracle 
And by the same token, God is not short on people to carry out His His business and His works, but He desires to get glory out of your life. And how does that happen? Well, these nets had probably caught a lot of fish in the past. And if the purpose of the nets was merely to catch fish, then it was best for them to stay whole and sound. You don't want nets that are broken. They're of no good to you. But now the purpose of these fish was not to catch a bunch of fish. If he had, the Lord wouldn't have given him a great draught of fishes. He would have given him two pretty good draughts of fishes. But you see, the whole purpose was to bring glory to God out of it. And it was in the breaking of the net that Christ got the most glory out of this situation. You know what you're going to find in your Christian walk? You're going to find that it is in the breaking of the net of your life that God gets the most glory. We were talking a little bit about this in Sunday school, preaching and teaching out of Ephesians. The world's perspective, generally speaking, at least worldly Christianity's perspective, is that God is the great life coach of the universe. And I have a set of goals and ambitions that I've set forth. And His job, fundamentally, is to help me achieve those life goals. This is the most humanistic and wrong-headed of perspectives about God's working in this world. God's not here to help you be the best you can be. You are here to give glory to God. And by dint of that, the way that God gets glory out of your life is not looking at you and saying, well, these I think are the best qualities. We'll try to emphasize these. God's not airbrushing a new face on you like them YouTube makeup people do. He's not looking and saying, well, there's good about you. Let's emphasize it. And there's bad about you. Let's try to cover that up and conceal it. God's looking at you and saying, you're a mess. And if I can, through that mess, create something for the glory of God, then men will stand back in awe and say, not look how beautiful this is, but look what a God we have. God's not scared of the brokenness of your life. All He'd do is break it anyway. You give your life to Christ. Here's what you're going to find. Your problems aren't going to altogether go away. But you'll find that through that brokenness, Christ will minister grace into your life and then thereby get glory from it. And in fact, it is through your natural life. And what I mean by that, I don't mean your physical wellness, but I mean your your identity, your personality, your preferences, your desires, your ambitions. It's actually through those things being set aside. And instead, your life being lived for the glory of God, that God gets glory out of you. These nets served a singular purpose, and that was to feed the fishermen. But God took ordinary nets and used them for extraordinary means. And He did so not through the patching of them together, but rather through the tearing of them apart, that men might see the wondrous works that God could do. And in your life, what you'll find is that when you yield your life to Jesus Christ, He's not going to come in and say, yeah, you look pretty good. You know, we we might just brush this up. We might just brush that up, son. He's going to come in like a wrecking ball. And I'm not trying to scare you. I mean, it's the most glorious thing that you could ever imagine. But he's not going to come in and leave any stone unturned. He's going to come into your life and he's going to say, now, look, you thought you were living right. You thought you were doing right. But look at all these areas of your life that you could be doing more for Jesus Christ. He's going to come in and say, you've been depending on self, but that's not going to get it done. And even the things you've been doing that seem to be being done for me, you were doing in the strength of your own energy and not by the power of my spirit. He'll come in and he'll say everything about you. I 
want to displace with the personality and person of Jesus Christ. It's in the breaking of the nets that the miracle is done. We find he taught him the lesson of the feeble nets. And then a final thing, and I'm done, verse 7. It says, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ships. I, this isn't one of my messages, but I could say he taught him the lesson of fellowship. They, need, they needed other people of God around them. You need other people of God around you. Man, that's not an optional thing. You need other people of God around you. That they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships. What happened? The Bible says so that they began to sink. wonder why they filled the ships. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Peter and James and John here. I mean, they're fishermen. And probably whenever Peter started to haul these nets up, these fishermen just sprang into action. But let's stop and examine why a person would do such a thing. See, here's the problem. In the fisherman's mind, they caught the fish so that they could get it into the boat, haul it to shore, take it to market, sell it, provide for their family and personal enrichment. But that wasn't why Jesus had given them this fish. Jesus had given them this fish so that he would get glory for himself. And here's what happened. When they tried to keep the fish for themselves, the boats began to sink. He taught them the lesson of the foundering ships. And you know what you'll find in your life? This is what happens. Man, I was raised in a Bible-believing church, Christian education, raised around people. I mean, I I was so inundated, saturated with the Word of God. It was in our life day in, day out, day in, day out. And you know what I saw, a phenomenon? I saw people that would just sort of intermittently, they give their heart to Christ, they get saved, and then afterwards they, they just intermittently sell out for Jesus. What I mean is intermittently they give their life to it. And then before long, they grow lukewarm, tepid. They get interested in their own things. And here's what would happen. Whenever they sold out, gave their life to Christ, He filled their nets. And they was rejoicing and they was thrilled. But somewhere along the lines, they just couldn't help but be heartsick watching all those fish swim through broken nets. And they'd say, maybe we better get some of these in the boat. Don't you know how much money we could get from them? And then they'd start making their life about them again. And it didn't take long, man. Their ships would start to sink again. I wonder if you've ever had a season in your life where you got serious about Christ. I don't mean when you got saved. Maybe both these things happened at the same time. But I mean distinctly, you got serious about Jesus Christ. I want to live for Him. I'm going to get serious about this. I want to walk with Him daily. I want to pray. I want Him to govern my life and guide my life. I'm serious about it. And then as time passed, I mean, God blessed you and your life just really, God did some amazing things. But as time drug on, you kind of just got distracted and got back to the same old life. And now you sit here this morning and your ship is foundering. You're discouraged. You're defeated. You're wondering what went wrong and what went sideways. I can tell you exactly what did. Somewhere along the lines, it got about the fish again and quit being about your faith in the Lord Jesus tell you this he taught him that this thing that he was making this commitment was a lifetime commitment it wasn't just a great spiritual feat that he was achieving only to then slide back into indifference and complacency he tells him he says henceforth thou shalt catch men i don't know how you define the word henceforth but it means from now forward the lord jesus didn't hide the ball he said peter this is not a seasonal thing I expect you, if you follow me, to follow me the rest of your days. And you know what you'll find? Peter, in the seasons of his life, 
when he began to make it about himself, his ship began to founder. Later on in his life, there was a point when the Lord Jesus was talking about his soon coming death. And, and Peter, that, that breaks his heart. And I understand that. I even sympathize with it. He loved the Lord. But he grabbed the Lord by the shoulders and rebuked him and said, Be it far from thee. Jesus does not mince words. He looks him dead in the eye and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And he understood he was talking to Satan, but he also knew he was talking to Peter. You say, Preacher, what are you? I'm not saying Peter was indwelt by Satan. I'm saying he understood, Jesus did, that Peter was saying this because he was prompted by the devil. But he also knew Peter was saying this too. And that's why he says, Thou savorest not the things of God, but the things that be of men. Satan doesn't savor the things that be of men any more than the things that be of God. He savors the things that be of Satan. He was telling Peter, Peter, you're not saying this because you love me. You're saying this because you love you. Later on, Peter's sitting beside a fire and men begin to question him whether he knows this man Jesus of Galilee that was arrested this night. Peter begins to be nervous about what it could mean for him and he denies the Lord Jesus. After our Lord is risen from the dead, Peter, feeling disillusioned and disconcerted, confused, disoriented by the current state of his life, he gets discouraged and gives up and he says, I've got to make a living And he looks at James and John and he says, I go a fishing. And they said, we also go with thee. And he goes right back out to the lake of Gennesaret and begins fishing again. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, that every time Peter went back to living for himself, he always got in the same mess again. Your life, my life, every time that we go back and make it about us, you know what you're going to find? We're always going to wind up in sinking ships. See, here's the truth that Peter learned that day is that the only life worth living is a life consecrated to Christ and that the only way to live that life is to be truly consecrated to him. I wonder if you'd be willing. I I know you're on the shore. You wouldn't be at church if you weren't on the shore. You, by coming to church, are on the shore. You're making a public profession that you're a Christian, uh, that, that you know God. I don't know your heart. I don't know if you've ever been saved or not. Only God knows, and you should know whether you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We can know, as Brother Ken said this morning when he was praying, we can know, and we can know, and we can know, and we can know. I'm glad I know that I'm saved. But I don't know your heart. I don't know if you've ever been born again or not. Only you know that, and God knows that. But even if you're saved by the grace of God this morning, you're probably just standing by the shore. I wonder if you'd be willing to launch out into the deep with him. I tell you, that's where the miracles are done. That's where God gets the most glory. That's where the life worth living really happens. So I wonder if you'd be willing to launch out into the deep with Him today. Let's bow our heads this morning. A musician's going to come and play, but I want you to use this altar right now. If God spoke to your heart, would you slip out of your seat right now and meet Him in this altar? Don't give the devil even a moment to bully you. You just right now slip out of your seat, find a place in this altar and begin doing business with God. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.